Welcome to Journey to the Stage with Brian Frazier. This is episode number 19, and we have a very, very special guest today. Before we jump into our conversation, I want to invite you to follow us on the Journey to the Stage podcast on Instagram. That handle is Journey to the Stage Podcast. Uh, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash journey to the stage podcast. I have a brand new YouTube channel as well where I post visualized podcasts. Every once in a while you come across a very special person who has a legendary career and while you might not know their name, you know their work and such is my guest today. I am honored to welcome to Journey to the Stage vocalist, songwriter, choral contractor, author, actress, Miss Sally Stevens. I could spend literally hours talking through uh, Sally's list of accomplishments and we'll share some highlights and uh, many of which we'll talk about as our conversation gets started. But let me just give you a little overview of some of Sally's major accomplishments. She's recorded with artists like Frank Sinatra and Andy Williams, Bert Bacharach, Sonny and Cher, Neil Diamond, Dean Martin, Percy Faith, and on and on. And she's toured as a vocalist with Bert Bacharach and Ray Conniff and one of my favorite singers, Nat King Cole. She's uh, acted in scores of commercials and during uh, the heyday of the variety show, she sang on the Danny Kay Variety Show. She sang on Carol Burnett, The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and later on Love Boat, Happy Days, and, and many other shows during that period. She also has sung on film scores and films like The Sound of Music, How the West Was Won, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and many others. We'll talk about her work as a choral contractor with such legendary film composers as John Williams. Sally Stevens, welcome to Journey to the Stage. Thank you so much, Brian. It's delightful to be here. It's really an honor to have you on, and we have a million and one things to talk about. And so everyone knows, since we won't be able to cover everything you've done, mm -hmm. uh, I know that you've been working on your memoir. How, how is that coming along, and where does that stand? Well, thank you for asking about it. It's in the process of publication right now. It's with a small press in Austin, Texas called Atmosphere Press. They've been a wonderful team, and I, it's really more like self-publishing, but that's kind of what you have to do these days. Mm -hmm. but the putting together of the manuscript was really done before I took the book to them, and they've been a wonderful team. That They've given me some feedback, and right now it's in the process of the layout of the book, and I'm in touch with the gentleman that's doing the cover design. We're trying to decide which of the multiple um, formats he's designed for the cover we should use. How fun. That's got to be really exciting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, near the end of our conversation. Just a quick update from the time of recording. Sally's autobiography memoir is due around August 15th. So to get further updates on that, visit sallystevenswriter.com and the links will be in the show notes. I know a few nights ago when we were we were on the phone together, I had to verify something that I'd read because we all know that, you know, everything you read on the internet isn't true. So <laughs> before we go back in time a little bit and talk about, you know, your overall journey, tell us about your involvement with uh, the Simpsons TV show. Well, the Simpsons, you know, the show has been airing this, I think, I believe it's in its 32nd season, 31st or 32nd season. Mm -hmm. 
when the show was first put together, I had been working on some of Danny Elfman's early film scores. I had contracted and sung on several of his early films, and he was hired to write the main title for The Simpsons. So we recorded the main title. And you know, it's it's one of those things you never know whether something at that stage is going to air more than a season. Right. But it's, it's turned out to be such a blessing. Uh, same original main title is still airing. And over the years, I worked with the wonderful composer Alf Clausen, who really, in my opinion, established the sound of the show with with the music that he created. And yes. there were a lot of little voc. I did some celebrity sound alike end title credits for the show. And the lady at Fox, by the way, was very smart about that because some people had been sued for doing sound alikes, but they got around that by giving screen credit whenever anybody did that. So you uh, knew that it wasn't actually Barbara Streisand or whatever. We've done character, you know, the village people singing about something or one of the other guest characters singing. It was just a wonderful uh, activity over the years. It was one of the best things I've been involved with. Well, how fun, too. And it's it's so interesting to think about how your voice has filled my home more times than I could even count with my son, Jacob. <laughs> I don't think there's a day that goes by that he doesn't watch at least one episode of The Simpsons. And so I was telling him about it. So that's that's your voice. And did you say that um, Danny Elfman's singing that with you, just that opening? Yes, it was Danny and I and my daughter, Susie Stevens-Logan, who was oh. uh, just starting to get into session work at that time. She's had a wonderful career, too. Wow, how fun. In fact, I, I, yeah, we'll definitely we'll chat about that a little bit towards the end. Let's jump back a little bit. I know that from reading your bio and things that your mom was a vocalist. Take us back a little bit and tell us what music was like in your family home. My mother and my father and my stepfather were all singers. And my mom and dad were divorced when I was very little, like a year and a half or two years old. And my dad had started to work in Hollywood in films on screen. I mean, he, he sang, uh, he was the romantic lead with Jeanette MacDonald in a film called Broadway Serenade, oh, okay. only in the, in the scenes where the musical was a part of the film. Right. But uh, he did many other projects here that I only recently learned about. And my mom, they, they met in Chicago on the singing on the Hymns of All Churches radio program. So he came out here first. And then he was playing a recording of hers for someone at uh, MGM. And um, Louis B. Mayer stepped out of his office and said, who is that young lady singing? And my dad told her and told him. And he said, how soon can you get her out here? So she was brought out under contract, too. It, she always talked about the fact that she didn't have the the political skills and the confidence and the personality to ever have been to become another Janine McDonald. Right. But she got into session singing and she sang with Ken Darby and Walter Schumann and Gordon Jenkins. She did a lot of uh, scores for motion pictures in the late 30s and in through the 40s and up into wow. the 50s. And my stepdad also was a singer. He was part of a quartet called The Guardsmen. And sometimes they got credit as the lady killers in a film if they were working on on <laughs> Both my stepdad and my mom really had more of a classical background in their right. training that he was very involved in opera and so forth. 
So your mom was then, she was under contract with MGM. What was her connection to the Wizard of Oz? Because I think this is really interesting. <laughs> well, she she was really just part of the, the choir that did the underscore vocals, but she also was one of the singers that did the voices for all the little munchkins. <laughs> and, and and that of those, of course, were just vocals sped up a bit, but that had right. to have been fun. How neat. And what a connection to really such a historic film. Yes. So was it your mom's example and seeing your dad and your stepdad? Is that what made you want to kind of pursue that as well? You know, I, I think music was just so much a part of my household and my surroundings. I, when I was very little, like five years old or so, my grandmother used to take me, if she'd take me visiting to friends, she would say, Sally, sing for Mrs. whatever her name was. Oh, so I'd go in the kitchen, I'd go in the kitchen and hide behind the kitchen door and sing from there. And it was, <laughs> it was less intimidating. Right. And I always enjoyed singing. I started writing songs when I was in high school and I... You know, I think my dream was really to become a songwriting artist. But I once the door opened for session work, and, and in those days, too, I was married very young. And and once I was married, I was kind of off the, I didn't have the energy to pursue an artist career. Right. But I got settled into the session work, and it was such a blessing. And you don't want to get out of position from that very long, because it's, it's, it's work that's really competitive and highly sought after. And mm -hmm. if you don't show up one day, they might discover someone they like better. So you got to keep showing up. Wow, that's really interesting. And I know that you were a, a music major at UCLA, and you had a little bit of a running away with the circus type moment your senior year. <laughs> Share that story with us. Well, I in my junior year, I had been taken to to meet with Herb Albert and Lou Adler, who at that time were wow. partners. They, it was before they had all their wonderful achievements. Um, they were looking for a young singer to record a song that Herb had written. So that I went to see them, and they liked what I did, and said and Herb asked if I had a song for the backside of the single. It was a 45 at that time mm -hmm. record. So I went home and wrote a song for the backside, and he liked it better than his song. So he recorded two of my songs. Wow. And it and the song came out on Dot Records, and it got to number 10 in Connecticut, but that's as far as it ever got. Just about that time, I had a chance to audition for the first road uh, concert tour that Ray Conniff was to do. Wow. He had just released an album of him of, as an artist rather than doing arrangements for other people. Mm -hmm. So we did a 10-day West Coast tour up and got as far as British Columbia. And it was a wonderful experience because I met some other, the other people in the, in the group had done session work too. And... Mm -hmm. So I got to know a little more about that, and I sat next to Russ, to Ray sometimes on the bus, and and would, you know, I learned so much from him about like the difference between dotted eighth and and even eighth notes. Wow. And I realized I, when the fall tour came up with Ray, I had an op, an offer to go on a forty seven one nighter bus concert tour all over the United States. 
And I, I felt that I was going to learn so much more about the business, the profession that I wanted to be a part of, because I did not want to teach necessarily, mm-hmm. that I took the chance and did that and never, I, I never did my senior year of, at UCLA, so I never actually graduated. But wow. that was the beginning of my involvement with the business in a profession, really professional way. That is so interesting. What a what a really fascinating story. I really had the great blessing of being raised in a home with so much great music. My mom had a massive album collection of Sinatra and all those real golden age singers. And one of the Christmas albums she would play was the Ray Conniff singers. Oh my goodness. And, you know, she would record it on a track. We had a motorhome at the time and I just, you know, I remember being a kid and we were driving up to Big Bear. I grew up in Los Angeles and uh-huh. um, I, and just those songs, Ray Conniff, and I didn't know who he was. And it really yeah. wasn't until last year. I'm like, okay, I know one of the lyrics. I couldn't figure out even the song because I figured, okay, if I could figure out the song, mm-hmm. I can jump on iTunes or something like that and play them until I figured out who this artist was. And then I found yeah. a song. I don't remember which one it was. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, is it? Count your blessings. It says we count instead of sheep. Um, counting our blessings, I think. Was yeah, uh-huh. I, I fall asleep counting my blessings. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I discovered that song and I clicked it. I'm like, this is the version. Oh, it's Ray Conniff's, oh. the oh, Ray Conniff God. singer. So it just, mm. those sounds are so much a part of my childhood. Um, well, that, that period of time, he was very, very much played and, and, and became very popular. And it's the first time anybody had done that, you know, instead of the lyrics using vocals, but on the ba-ba-da-ba-das as a choir. It was, yeah. it was very creative of him, and, it, and uh, people seemed to love it. Yeah. Now, you later would tour with Burt Bacharach. And as I mentioned, one of my favorite singers, Nat Cole, Mm-hmm. What was it like touring with Nat? Because I, you know, and of course, I think a lot of people in my generation don't even know how gifted a piano player he was because he was a session player before he really started his singing career. What was it like touring with Nat? Well, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Again, we we did, the tour was, we did one month in Colorado Springs. I'm, no, I'm sorry, two weeks. Then we came back here. Maybe it was some, anyway, we, a, a period of time. Then we came back here to the Greek theater. Oh, and wow. then we went to the East Coast and did the uh, tent circuit along the East Coast. And it was an interesting time. Uh, he was fantastic. He was incredible. He was gracious and sweet. He had been diagnosed, by the way, with lung cancer at that oh. time, but we thought it was all over with that he was okay. Oh, okay. And it tur- turned out that that was the second to last tour he was able to do. Wow. And it was a mixed group of singer-dancers, 12 uh, singers, mixed, racially mixed. Mm-hmm. We rehearsed here in town, and then we performed, and it was a, an amazing experience. The, the first part of the, I I think it was the first half of the program was we were on stage with him and there was a bit of choreography, not what you could really call dancing, but, and we did, you know, gospel and pop songs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then he came out the second half with his trio, just jazz and played his piano and sang and the audience was enraptured. 
was very revealing too. This would have been, let's see, we did the the uh, fall tour with Conniff in the fall of 1960. Mm. And that I found out many, many years later was we were just on the heels of the Freedom Rider demonstrations oh, in the South. Yeah. So we were seeing the signs on the, you know, the whites and mm-hmm. whites only, all that. <laughs> Pardon me. And um, it was like being on another planet for me because I had never experienced that here in California. Yeah. And then when we toured with Nat, that would have been 1962. And we were in New England. We were not in the South. But still, at that time, our friends, our, our singer colleagues would share that if we were in a restaurant or a bar, the way the management would let them know they were not welcome was that they would get an ice cube with a fly in it in their drinks. Really? And and this was New England, you know, so oh. it was not... It was, but it was a wonderful experience. Uh, Nat was amazing. I, I was sorry, you know, so we were all so sorry to lose him. Yeah. And he'd and been we, through it. He, he had this wonderful TV show that was finally taken off the air, be, probably because of racist responses to the yeah. advertisers that would support him. And I, I still think, you know, what what a voice, you know, when, when he starts oh. singing, you know, too young or any he's just in a league of his own um yes he was i was grateful to be able to record with him i wish i could remember the specific songs now but we recorded several times with him at Capitol records you've been in the studio with many other legends from really what i call the golden age of vocalists these great crooners like sinatra mm-hmm. and, and andy williams the two oh, yeah. other of my favorites and, and dean martin my goodness you yeah. can love these guys. Are there any stories or any memories you have of of being in this studio with these guys? And maybe, wow, or pinching <laughs> yourself, thinking, well, how did I get here? <laughs> oh, yeah. I tell you, I, in those days, and even now sometimes, we were able to take our our lead sheet home with us, you know. And I had a couple with Frank Sinatra's autograph. One of or A couple of them I gave to Seth MacFarlane because I worked with him on Family Guy and he was such a fan of and a supporter of wonderful music and sounded a lot like Sinatra. But I remember working on Trilogy, which was the uh, album he did, I believe Gordon Jenkins and the other wonderful arranger that he worked, uh, I'll think of the name in a minute. But And I think we recorded some of that at the Shrine Auditorium on stage. It was set up like a concert. Really? And, uh huh. And then we did some sessions. Uh, he did many many recordings at United Recorders, which was on Sunset Boulevard, the corner of Gower. And Frank was always so prepared. He would come in, and it's same thing at Capitol. He'd come in and do two takes and go home. And the the orchestra, the the singers and the and the musicians were all in the room all at the same time in those days. Mm-hmm. And we'd run the song a few times to get any glitches out and know what we were doing. Then he'd come in and do his vocal and maybe do a second take, and that was it. And I remember one evening, is particularly at United, where he and Mia Farrow had just begun to see each other. And she came, she came in with him, and she had just cut her hair really short to make a statement about her independence, kind of. Gotcha. And yeah. it, was, it was fun to see them come in with his entourage. But he was always very pleasant. And I have, I have a little story about Frank that's a more personal story, not, not with me, but if you'd want to hear it. Sure, I'd love if, to. 
a dear, dear friend of my dad's was a gentleman named Jack Pfeiffer, and he was the uh, musical director for um, Sony Honey Ice Review. They traveled together. And when Jack retired, he settled in Palm Springs, and he used to play at one of the restaurant nightclubs on the main street there. And Frank came in almost nightly when he was in the Palm Springs area. And people were always trying to start a fight with him, you know, because he was they thought part of the mafia and he was, they just always, he got a lot of that kind of confrontation and he would gracefully get out of it somehow. But one night a guy came up at him and uh, they got the kid, the guy calmed down, but they had had too much to drink. But Frank later found out that the gentleman's wife was in the hospital at the time suffering from cancer. And he ended up paying all the hospital bills for that guy. Really? And, and those are the stories you don't hear about Frank. No, that is an incredible story. I love to watch you know, on YouTube the old Johnny Carson, you know, The Tonight Show. Yes. When Frank would be on there. And then when Don Rickles would join, oh my, it, I would laugh <laughs> so hard. And I, I love that there's, there's one episode, maybe you've seen it, with Don Rickles. Don is telling the story that he was, he was out to eat with this, this woman he was dating at the time. This was before he was married. Uh-huh. And Frank was in the restaurant, and so he scooted, excused himself to the bathroom or something like that. Went to Frank's team. He's like, "Hey, I've got this girl I'm going to be I'm eating with. Could you just, <laughs> I, I, she, I want her to know that you know we're friends, and it'll make a you know great statement." So he sits down. A little bit later, Frank comes over and he said, "Hey, Don," and he looks up at Frank. Hey, I'm trying to eat here. <laughs> <laughs> just so fun. When I worked in uh, one of my early involvements in the business was before we really had gotten into session singer singing, my first husband and I worked as production singers in Las Vegas. And in those days, they'd have a 15 minute, like a little mini musical show before the headliners come on. And during those times, Don Rickles was always in the lounge or often in the lounge working as a performer. And he was hysterical. We'd go in there after our show and watch his late show. And he, he was just... The the way he hurled insults at the audience and they they stuck around it was pretty amazing. I was so sad when he when he left us. I my yes. my boys and I have watched so much of his work, and you know, oh. he would look at a guy's wife and I, is that your wife? She's a moose. And so we my boys and I will joke about that line periodically. She's a moose. <laughs> You have shared a lot of great stuff with your your guys, your little guys. They're they're very lucky to have have been exposed to some of that early stuff. Yeah. Now, do you ever listen back to some of those old recordings, some of those old songs, and pick your voice out, or do you ever do that to reminisce a little bit? You know, I I always love when suddenly I'm hearing something and I realize that I was singing on it. But at the Sinatra stuff, I do listen to Ray Conniff's, of course. I There are a couple of Facebook pages where there are fan pages for him, and every once in a while someone will post an older thing. And I love hearing the stuff we did with Bert. It's so funny with, I'm a little old lady now, and I'm not Stop, I'm, stop I'm, it. I'm, I'm not as plugged into Spotify and all that stuff. And I... You know, please forgive me, new artist folks, but I don't really enjoy too much the music of today. Mm-hmm. But I have in my iTunes, in my computer, every time you play something, you know, it gets into your iTunes. Right. And sometimes I'll just click to play and it goes through all these things that are totally at random combined 
with each other, and I'll I'll come across something that I did, and I'll confess that the ones I enjoy hearing the most are the solo things I've done for some television show or something. Yeah. But all of a sudden, something will pop up that I'd forgotten I did, and it it is really really fun to hear those. I can only imagine. Now I know <laughs> through the '60s and '70s, you were really in demand. You were hired to sing on a number of great variety shows. It was such a great period for television, like the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and the Danny Kaye mm-hmm. Variety Show, Carol Burnett, mm-hmm. and then even shows like Happy Days and Love Boat. Mm-hmm. What was it like working on those shows? And then also, I know that you had a little bit of a connection with Judy Garland, kind of you know tracing back to the work that your mom did on well, Wizard of Oz. What was your connection yeah. with, with Judy Garland? Well, I'll start back with the Danny Kay show. That he went on the air in 1963, so that was very, very early. It was one of the first real professional regular gigs that I got. It was a great way to meet the the very busy session singers at the time, and I'm sure it helped uh, pull me more into the business in that way. Danny's show was such fun to work on. It was a blast, and it was usually a three-day schedule. We'd come in, we'd we'd be there for the table read, and you could always tell which writers had written which jokes wow. because they were the ones that laughed the loudest. Right. <laughs> and we'd run the music for Danny, and, and then maybe there would be a wardrobe fitting that day. Then mm-hmm. the second day, we'd come in and we'd do the, tele, the on-camera blocking, and usually that evening, there'd be an orchestra rehearsal where you'd run through. But everything was done live, so there wasn't a pre-recording for Danny's show. Wow. And then we'd go across the street to the Farmer's Daughter Motel that had a bar and restaurant attached. And often we'd sit in the... I don't know if you want to hear these rambling personal stories. Sure, no, they're great. This is why we're chatting. (laughs) Okay. We'd go over there uh, sitting in one of the big round leather booths, and it would often be Harvey Corman, who you may remember. Oh, of course. Billy Barnes, who wrote some... He wrote Something Cool and uh, Little Girl Blue and uh, wonderful songs. Mm -hmm. And Earl... Brown, who was the choral director, and then one of the dancers, Jackie Powers, and I were the lucky ladies that got to sit in those booths. And sometimes the guest star would come at one particular time, it was Michelle Legrand, and we ended up going from there out to the the open bars where he could sit in and play piano. And I'm sure the people in that bar never knew who they were hearing, but oh, sure. it was great times. And we played this silly game, which was actually a great game, where you take a sheet of paper and the first person writes two lines of a story that they're going to create. And then they fold their first line over and pass it on. And the next person only sees the second line and they add their two lines, but they fold their first line. So... It goes around the booth, and this bizarre story unfolds that that nobody knows what the next for the person before them had written. Right. I wish I had kept some of those stories. Oh yeah, well that was planting some seeds for for what you would pick up much, you know, throughout Later. your life. Really, you've, you've yeah. Been... And it, and the audience was was live there in the in the CBS studios, so it was. It was what it was a wonderful training period too, and in, in learning how to be professional and show up on time, and mm-hmm. and then the uh, the Smothers Brothers I only worked on occasionally. The Jimmy Joyce Singers were doing the Smothers, and if somebody couldn't make it, I would get to hop in. Oh, I see. And Carol Burnett also. It was not a regular weekly thing. The uh, Judy Garl and Red Skelton also was going on at that time on oh, the CBS. Yes, TV. yes. Right. Once in a while, I got to hop in on that. And the Judy Garland show was 
this was at a difficult period of time in her life. Mm. And I only did a couple of, of those shows, two or three, I think. But often, you know, we'd, we'd be there and the audience would be there and she would show up an hour late or something. It was a thrill to be in the same room with her, you know. Sure. But it was a tough time in her life. Yeah, what a tragedy. Reading her bio is, obviously there's much to celebrate, but it's mixed with so much sadness and tragedy. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. the poor lady, you just well, feel terrible. She lost her childhood just like Michael Jackson did, really. But I mean, she was she was drugged and medicated to keep on the set, and she had no childhood. So I'm not surprised that she had problems with substance later in her life. Now, not only were you singing in commercials, and you did a ton of commercials in that time. Is that mm -hmm. one of those things where you kind of you get on somebody's radar and just one thing leads to another? Or what was that your commercial work like? Well, in the 60s, there was a singer here in town named Ron Hicklin. And he I met him very early in my career and in his career. He was he was actually managed by the manager, his group, the uh, the uh, eligibles was managed by the group of the same guy that took me to meet with Herb Albert. And Ron was wonderful at what he did. He was a vocal contractor. He was a wonderful singer. But he also was very good at working with the producer, putting vocal singers together and making the right sound. And he got established here in town in the late 60s as the Ron Hicklin Singers. Okay. And I was very, very blessed to be a part of his work. It was myself and Jackie Ward most of the time, and then Ron Hicklin, Stan Farber, and Al Capps. And he was working with a, a producer, jingle producer at the time, named Don Pystrup. And we did a ton of recording at Bell Sound, a little studio in Hollywood on the one of the off streets. And it just grew. The first campaign that was out here that really seemed to draw commercial production out here to L.A. from New York and Chicago, which was where it was predominantly happening at the time, was a campaign that we did for Olympia Beer. And Ian Freeburn Smith did the charts, wrote the jingle, and did the arrangements for that. Mm -hmm. And it, it really took off. And it, it we were doing... Oh, I, you know, I found some of my early date books recently when I was working on the memoir because wow. I saved everything. And in 1965, 60, 69, we were doing United Airlines, uh, beer commercials, car commercials. Now, this one was not with Ron Hicklin. This was with Jack Halloran, who the Jack Halloran singers were also very busy and more established earlier than Ron. Mm -hmm. And we, we did a commercial at Bell one day that was about this new product that none of us had ever heard of. Uh, it was a, a card where you could take to the store and use instead of money, and it was called MasterCard. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was the early stage of, of television ads, mm -hmm. and it was quite a wonderful time, and we're blessed to be a part of all that. Well, how exciting. And you've done so much work in film, and I love to dig into that with you. You've worked on some very iconic films, Sound of Music, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Dirty Harry, Dr. Zhivago. I mean, many, many. How did you get started working in in the film industry in that regard, you know, with on film scores and that type of thing? Well, the the community here in Hollywood was it was very much crossed all those areas of work. And at a time when I first started the legendary 
singers that were really the generation before me, Bill Lee, Thurl Ravenscroft, who eventually became Tony the Tiger. He was the oh, deep bass. Oh, yes. His voice, uh, the Grinch. I mean, yes, he is yes. very, very, he had done so many projects. He was iconic. Yeah. Well, they were they were the contractors at the time. You stand next to somebody on a session, and if you do a good job, they might say, oh, I met this new soprano, blah, blah, blah. Well, occasionally I, I would get hired when a wonderful soprano that really was from my mother's era of work, her name was Luli Jean Norman, and she sang the Star Trek theme that was on the television show for oh, years. Oh, really? That high soprano voice, huh? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, a couple of times she couldn't make a, a session and there was a soprano solo written, so I would be asked to do it. So people began to know that I guess I had the sound, that the high shimmery sound that they liked. So I began to do film squares. The first one that I worked on was How the West Was Won. Wow. And I think I was 20 years old at the time. I didn't do any solo work on that, but it just... Um, and then gradually I got to do, I, Dr. Zhivago came, I think, closely after that, and The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music, the, the part that I had, it was involved in with that, was recorded at RCA Records Studios that is no longer there, but it was on Sunset Boulevard, just west of Vine Street. And we were the 12, the singing nuns, the, the sisters that, how do you solve really? a problem? And I didn't, again, I, you know, you, I didn't know enough about the business or really the whole world of music to know that that was going to become an iconic. I should have known, but I didn't. And uh, so we, we were not working with the Julie Andrews in person. We were just doing the, the uh, not singing nuns. Right. How um, do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How fun. Then, yeah. And then Ron Hicklin began to start contracting films about in the process of this memoir, I thought, well, I'll, I'll include a, a partial list of credits at the end of the book. It turned out that I had about nine single-spaced pages of film titles. <laughs> and well, That's why I was preparing up until the middle of the night last night. It's like, wow, <laughs> this, this, this lady's done so much. Yeah, and, and um, Brian, I never wanted to, uh, to be a vocal contractor because I thought it was a very political job. Mm. And I thought that, you know, if you were doing that, then the other contractors would not want you on their sessions and so forth. My work kind of slowed down in an ironic sort of way. God, you're, you're hearing the whole memoir today. Along in the 70s, I think it was, mm -hmm. middle to later 70s and into the 80s, there was a, Ron Hicklin by this time was the guy in town, and I was blessed to be a part of his work. But I had also become a little jaded with the commercials work because it was, that was very much a man's world. Mm. And the and the agency guys would be in the control booth at Bell Sound and, and make comments that were not entirely appropriate. And <laughs> right, right. When the opportunity came to travel with Burt Bacharach, I just couldn't pass that up. Yeah. And it meant that I was not traveling for long periods of time, but I'd be gone for, you know, maybe two weeks in Vegas, two weeks in Tahoe, mm -hmm. three weeks on the East Coast in the summer. And then we did do the uh, international tours. 
And so while I was gone, Ron would have work and he'd um, have to bring another soprano in. And so when I came back to town, there were a couple of weeks that were slow getting back started again. An opportunity came up to to contract for Danny Elfman through the music production people at Universal Pictures. They recommended me and I did Danny's first few films, Pee Wee's Great Adventure and and uh, Beetlejuice and, and Edward Scissorhand and on into the Batman songs. And that's kind of what opened it up and that's what opened up the television involvement with Fox TV. And But I had been in the business by that time almost 25 years. This wow. happened in the mid 80s. And, and of course, it did not cut me off from working for others. Uh, it, it became what probably expanded my work all these years. It was a deeper connection. You know, to, to work on a film score is magical, no matter whether you're just singing or what you're doing. You walk onto the scoring stage. Mm-hmm. In those days, the orchestra was there, the composer was there, mm-hmm. the c- conductor podium, and the, and it was a fabulous experience. But to work as a contractor deepened your connection with it because you had more communication with the composer. You understood exactly what they needed for their project at that particular project. And I'm going to pause here for a minute to go back and, at, you know, when we were talking about television, mm-hmm. you had mentioned Happy Days and The Love Boat. And I don't know yeah. if you wanted to touch on those. Oh, sure. Or, okay. So my involvement with The Love Boat and Happy Days and the one that Shirley Jones was part of, the Partridge Family. Oh, the Partridge Family, yeah. Yeah. Those were all, again, Ron Hicklin projects. Oh, okay. And and we did the show, we did the, I think we did the theme for Love Boat with Charlie Fox. Um, And then there once in a while would be music involved in the episode Mm -hmm. on air. We did some music for Partridge Family, but the, the basic group for Partridge Family was Jackie Ward and Ron Hicklin and a couple of the guys, and Jackie basically became Shirley Jones' voice for those, those projects. Wow. And those were very much fun. They were always off-camera sessions, not part of the production of the show, you know. Right, right. But they were fun to be a part of. I can only imagine. I, it, For me personally, I'm such a lover of film music, and looking at some of the film score composers that you got to work with, um, Michael Giacchino, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, Alvin Silvestri, mm-hmm. really composers that I have such great admiration for. And you also have had a long professional relationship with John Williams. And I remember reading about a note that he gave you. Tell us that story. Well, thank you for asking about that. My first project with John, where I was the vocal contractor, was for a film called Amistad. Great film. Yes. And it would have been, I think, a bigger Spielberg film. It was a painful subject, and I think it was hard for people to see. I was recommended to him by Sandy DeCrescent because I had worked on The Power of One for Hans Zimmer. And The Power of One was about uh, African the politics and the very authentic African music. Lebo Morake helped Hans write the music for that. It's what got Hans the Lion King eventually. Oh, right. Okay. That makes sense. So Sandy recommended me to John because I had been a part of The Power of One. And the first meeting that I had, uh, I actually met with Steven Spielberg and John to talk about the music. And it was a, a fascinating project to be involved in from the beginning because there was conversation. This this was, I think, in the about 95 or 97, I forget which. Mm-hmm. And, and Stephen was very conscious that this 
you know, should should this perhaps be a choir from one of the big black churches in L.A., the AME church? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Uh, should there be a black conductor? Should there? And I and I said, I'm happy to help however I can. You know, I, I whoever you would like to use. And at that time, also, Janine Wagner, who was Roger Wagner's daughter, had been doing John's contracting, vocal contracting, and I didn't want to displace her. And John was very sensitive about that. And uh, I had a conversation with with Janine. And I, I told John, if you want to use Janine, and I can just guide you through the the African music aspect of all of that. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And, and John was very sensitive about, you know, I, understanding that I didn't want to offend Janine and so forth. And But I talked with Janine on the phone. It turned out that the Wagner Ensemble, who she had by then put together, had a concert tour in Japan at the time. So it was an easy situation. It, yeah. it, I couldn't even plug her into the choir because she would be gone. But John had one cue. I went to his office, which was on the Amblin lot at the time in the mm-hmm. valley. And on an old moviola, we looked at this scene, and it was uh, one of the slaves on the slave ship that was coming from West Africa, mm-hmm. heavily bound in chains, and obviously pregnant, this young woman. Mm. She was sitting on the edge of the ship railing, and you could see by the expression in her face that this she was, she was not on board for this ride. Yeah. And in slow motion, slowly, she falls back over into the waves with the chains oh, all my. wrapped around. And John wanted a solo voice for that, but it, and it had to have an ethnic quality, mm-hmm. but it had to be the passion that he was writing with, and it had to have a tiny touch of his own music, which was more of a classical kind of mm-hmm. feel. So I got a lot of demo tapes together for him from singers here in town. They were all wonderful, but nothing was quite right. Mm-hmm. I was in New York at a meeting of, of the AFTRA Health and Retirement Trustees at the time, and I thought, well, I'll audition some singers from Juilliard. That'll be fun for the... So, and the ladies that came to do that were thrilled to be able to audition for John Williams. Oh, but sure. again, nothing, nothing was quite right. And then I, I was reached out, uh, someone recommended the new choral director for the San Francisco Opera Company, and I spoke with him, and he told me about a lady who had been working with him, Pamela Dillard was her name, and she was at that moment on a concert tour, a classical concert tour. I spoke with her on the phone from Birmingham, Alabama, Mm. and you know, sometimes you you just get these gut feelings. I, I could tell from talking to her that this was the right voice, and she sent a demo, and John loved it. And he ended up writing two more solo cues for her for the film. So it was was the right voice. But it was a fantastic project. And John was there conducting. It was a a mixed choir. There were mixed black and white singers. You tell the story. So what was John's note about where did that come in? The note from John came many years later. And it was really through the work relationship that I had with another composer, Dominic Frontieri. Dominic had given me my first opportunity to write lyrics for film projects. Mm. The first, that project was a film called On Any Sunday, and it was basically a documentary about motorcycle riding, but Stephen McQueen was part of it. So it became a pretty successful film, and it's still an icon among the motorcyclists in the world here. And I wrote the lyric, the main title for the lyric, and I mean, the main title for the film and sang on the film with Ron Hickman and the singers and did some solo work on the film. Um, so I became very close with Dom and his, his eventually his family later down the road. Dominic at that 
time, uh, shortly after we did that film and a couple others, was married to Georgia Frontieri, who was, became Georgia Frontieri, who was the owner of the Rams football game, football oh, okay, team. Yes, uh-huh. Uh, and they were only married for a short time, like a year or so, when this came up. There were there were some charity tickets that Georgia said were given to, to games, but it was turned out that they had been sold. And there was an investigation. Dominic would not testify against Georgia and did not have to because she was his wife at the mm-hmm. time. And as a result of that, he was convicted of fraud and he he went to prison for about six months. Wow. And when he came out, he had been nominated for Oscar awards. He had run the music deep. He was head of music for Paramount Film. When he came out of prison at that time, no one would return his phone calls. Mm. And it was it was heartbreaking. And he eventually married a wonderful young lady, Robin Frontieri. They had four brilliant kids. I had stayed in touch with them. And his wife was very protective of him and very angry, really, with the people in Hollywood. Sure. And his wife wrote to let me know that he had passed away. She said John Williams had stayed in touch with him through all those years and that he he had recently been in touch about this illness and expressed his sympathy. And so I wrote John a note. I couldn't help myself. I I wrote him a little paper note, snail Mm -hmm. mail note and told him about my relationship with Dom and that that Robin had shared how kind he had been. And I said, it doesn't surprise me in the least. You were just the most gracious and kind person in the business. He did receive it, and he sent me back a few days later this beautiful little note, which I shared in, about in the story. And it's on my mantle. <laughs> I can't help but look at it. I mean, I want it there every day to look at that's such a beautiful story, and it's not surprising. John does seem like a like a very tender-hearted person, and yeah, he he really was. He, we did a. I think it was part of the of a trailer that we had done for one of the Harry Potter films. We we couldn't do the score because it was produced in London. They were allowed to do a trailer here because it could be done through the commercials area of the studio business. And there was a solo for a little one of the little guys that had to be done, and, and I wasn't sure who should do it. So I had two of the kids kind of audition and record it for John, and he didn't want to hurt the one other feeling by saying, okay, we'll use you, the other right, kid. Right. So we said, we'll just pay them both for the solo, and we'll decide later who, who will do it. That is beautiful. So people know, as a contractor, your job would have been if if you're working on a film, say with John Williams, that he, if he wants a choir or he, you know, a children's choir or a a male Mm -hmm. choir for this, that it would be your job then to go out, put that choir together, get everybody Mm -hmm. set and ready. And oftentimes you sang in that choir too, right? I always sang in the choir. Yeah. The vocal contractor, it is a covered job under the SAG contract has been since the early sixties. And it must be a, a singing member of the choir or the vocal group, whether oh. it's a three-part figure. And the reason for that is because it was put into place long ago, like in my mother's era, there were people on staff in the studios that were part of the music department that would book the choir and stuff. And they, there was nobody to represent the singers. And they, they didn't get their breaks on time or they weren't properly paid. Or, you know, when you're on a, a riser in the studio with like 30 singers or even six or eight singers and the control, everybody's in the control booth, the composer, the studio people, blah, blah. There's, there wasn't anybody to communicate back and forth if there was a pitch problem or a change of parts or something. Uh, so it's very important that the contractor is one of the singers. 
sticking with John Williams here for a minute, mm -hmm. one of our favorite movies in, in our in our home is Home Alone. And there's that scene when Macaulay goes into the church and there's that choir singing Oh Holy Night. Is that one of your choirs? Honestly, Brian, it, it's hard for me to remember. I think that there was Home Alone and then there was Home Alone 2 and maybe even 3, I can't remember. Yeah. And the one that I was involved in with with Macaulay in a more direct, personal way, I just coached him for a, a singing little solo that he did. I don't know if it, that was the film or not, uh, where the choir was. But I met with him, he and his guardian, who I, I think was his father, was kind of his manager. And they were staying at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. And I met with him and worked on on the song with him there. But I was not on the scoring stage with him when he recorded. Yeah. Now, you've done work really with so many films. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? We mentioned Amistad, mm -hmm. Forrest Gump, which is another... Yeah favorite here in our family castaway and all three of the back to the future films how exciting that must be what was your work that you did in forrest gump well with Al alan silvestri was uh, was this one of the earliest composers that i worked for I, he was the second film composer i worked for after danny and the first one we did was uh, a choral piece that he didn't want to conduct. He wanted to be in the booth. So I got to conduct from my position up on the end of the risers. Oh, wow. But, uh, <laughs> but Roger Rabbit was the very first thing that I did with him, actually. And we met. Oh, okay. That was a small vocal group. Alan is, was wonderful always. He's one of my favorite people. And he was kind enough to write a little book blurb for me for the memoir. Oh, wow. Um, he was a wonderful, wonderful composer and wonderful to work with yeah yeah and Forrest Gump um we were not the there was an on-camera choir that I think was recorded on the set maybe in the in the south somewhere where the film was shot mm -hmm. but we did the underscore cues and we did one gospel song that became very important for the film and uh, that was here in town I think it was on the I think we did it on the Paramount scoring stage which is no longer there I also worked on What Women Want for Alan, and uh, that was an interesting project because it was for a woman director, and she loved what Alan did, but she was very hands-on involved with the music, and she wanted a lot of changes. It was almost like every after every vocal cue, we'd go into a little room, and she'd talk about what she wanted different. And as it turned out, that job spilled into many days of recording, which was a blessing to the singers. Oh, sure. And, and Alan was so patient and so uh, gracious with her. You know, a lot, there were composers that probably would have blew their stack and just thrown the manuscript at her. But Well, especially somebody of his caliber, too. He would have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, how neat. It was, and, that was and then you worked, as you mentioned, with Danny Elfman on Edward Scissorhands uh -huh. and Batman, Batman yes. Returns. And you'd mentioned Beetlejuice, which is still one of my favorite movies that came out, I think my senior year in high school. And oh I've, God. maybe you've heard these rumblings too, that they're looking at maybe doing a, a second movie with Recreating. still with Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice. Oh, that um, would be wonderful. And yeah. you can't, you know, you can't make a movie like that without Danny Elfman doing the music. That's his, right. His work in that movie is so fun. Well, he, he's an incredibly creative guy. And in the early films, Stephen Bartek was his orchestrator. 
you know, Danny came from the Oingo Boingo rock and roll. Oh yeah, world. that was that was my my day. Yeah, he has really polished his skills, his technical skills, his creativity was always there. But I mean, he's he's much more hands on, I think, with the orchestrations and everything now, uh, and in in those later films, the Batman films and stuff. But Steve was a big part of his creative process. Well, and what a team, you know, him and Tim Burton together. Oh, yeah. That is the dynamic duo right there for films because they're both so creative, both in my mind, geniuses. And it to me, that's a perfect match because the music so well captures the vision that Tim Burton casts. I've watched interviews with these guys and uh, this is very fascinating. You also worked with Seth MacFarlane on Family Guy. What did you do for that show? Well, we also sang the main title for that. It was a group of of uh, six singers. And Seth, Seth is one of the most outstanding people I've ever gotten to know in the business. He is such a supporter of fine music and he so believes in live singers and live orchestras. He's doing his his, uh, live action series, The Orville. He uses a huge symphonic like live orchestra to score wow. and you know he, he doesn't have to do that these days and mm-hmm. not everybody is but he he's a wonderful singer himself he's done many albums as a vocalist and he's a great admirer of the sinatra era he sounds a lot like frank in the early days when we did family guy and then he created american dad as well he was on the he was there when we did the vocals he was in the studio and it wasn't we weren't done till he was okay with everything uh, as he got busier, he would sometimes be on the road, but then he'd call in and listen to the vocals before we before we wrapped the sessions up. On top of your vast vocal work, your film score work, your acting, you're also a songwriter, and you wrote a song for James Taylor's first Christmas album. I'm a huge fan of James Taylor. I've seen him live. Tell us about that song you you wrote that he recorded. Well, that was one of those bucket list events in my life, Brian. It was totally out of the blue that that happened because in, I think it was 1987 or 82, it was in the 80s, maybe even earlier than that, 82, 85, when the movie Absence of Malice was done. Uh Uh, Dave Grusin was the composer. I worked on that as a singer. And for that film, he needed a little source cue that some children walking into a Catholic church at Christmas time were to sing. Mm-hmm. And he wanted it to be sound, sound a bit old English kind of um, style. Mm-hmm. By that time, I'd written lyrics for Dominic and for Don Ellis and for uh, Mike Melvoy and a couple of other film composers. So he gave me a chance to write the lyric for that. But it had been a very short cue in the film. So some years later, he was involved with James, the recording of James' first Christmas album. Mm-hmm. And he reached out to me and he said, Sally, can you, do you think you could write a second verse for our song? Because I'd like to play it for James, see if he liked it. So I did. We demoed it. He played it for James and James loved it. And so wow. it became part of that Christmas album. Who comes this night with humble heart to give a fullest measure, a gift of purest love 
I was beyond thrilled because since the late 60s, James Taylor had been my music idol. Oh, yeah, he's great. And so I, I asked if I could come to the session and maybe do some photographs of James. I had then by then gotten involved with the photography. And so the session was at Capitol Records. And, uh, and I one, showed up. The one in Hollywood, the round one? The, the one. That's wow. that, that is Capitol Records. Yeah. A studio. And I walked into the control booth, and James was sitting there at the control board. And he got up, walked over to greet me, and extended his hand and said, Hi, I'm James Taylor. You wrote a beautiful song. Would you like a cup of coffee? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of person he is. He's just a sweetheart. Mm. So that was that was quite a thrill. With a career that spans 60 years, what is it like to pause and, and look back, which you've done as you've you know, been working on your memoir? What is it like for you to you know, kind of talk about some of these old mm -hmm. stories and these experiences you had when you were in your 20s from your vantage point today? Well, it's interesting, Brian. You know, first of all, the pandemic was a huge help to me because... I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing to say because no. of the heartbreak it brought to so many. But there, there are odd gifts in it, you know, for all of us at some level, I think. And for me, the, the first couple chapters of my memoir are written about present day experiences. And part of that was how painful it had been for me to kind of step away a bit or be moved slightly to the side from all that I'd been doing because for 25 years I've been a single person. In terms of the memoir, you know, it's I, I, I've been going to summer writing workshops at the University of Iowa in Iowa City for, this would have been my 22nd summer of those had they not been canceled. And along the way, you know, people ask, we, you get to know what other people do in their lives. And, and when people learned that I'd worked in the music business for so long, they, they would say, oh, you've got to write a book. So I would once in a while d jump into a memoir class and start writing some of this stuff down. So it, the material was there. Before the pandemic, I had started to really tie it together, you know, mm -hmm. and put it in a, a careful edited form. But during the pandemic, of course, I, it gave me time to really focus on that. But it also allowed me to step away from the stuff that we see on Facebook all the time now, which has become a part of our business. Mm -hmm. It's a, become a part of everyone's world and that it's very self-promotional. It's how you let people know what you're doing and stuff. But once in a while, there would be a picture of a choir <laughs> at a session for a composer I used to work for that I did no longer work for. Mm -hmm. And it was hard. And at the same time that, that you know, you, you look back at your life and you say, geez, I've been so blessed. I've been so lucky. I've been, had a longer run in this than anybody I've ever known in the business. It was still hard not sure. to be a part of it. So for the first six months or so of our pandemic, of course, that didn't happen because those sessions were not happening. And it, and it gave me a chance to sit on my front porch and have a glass of wine and wave at my neighbors and get to know my little tribe here on the block and, yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and, it, and to write. But when I started to write, it was a year or two before the pandemic began, and I was going through, in a very personal way, some of that acceptance that, you know, things were changing, it was, it's hard, it's, you're grateful and sad at the same time. Mm -hmm. But it allowed me... To, you know, I, I must have, on a modest calculation, I would say I probably have 
40 or 45 calendar books that had become journals uh, and stuff over the over the years. Wow. And it gave me a chance to look back, read through some of those, remember the moments on the road with Burt Bacharach, remember the some of the artists that I worked with. In the early days, when I first began, I in my date book, I would write down 2 o'clock, Capitol Records, Ron Hicklin. But I didn't know who the artist was or the product was or what we were doing till I oh, got there. Right, right. So, so it was hard to go back and really identify some of those early projects. The sad aspect of it, one of the sad aspects, was that I would look back in my 65 and 69 and 72-year calendars and realize that the business was so different in those days. Right. That we, we would have a session at 9 in the morning, then we'd you know, have a lunch break, then there'd be a two o'clock session, maybe a a brief break and a seven o'clock session until 10 or 11. I was gone. And that happened six days a week. Wow. And, and none of none of those jobs paid a huge amount of money. Some of them were demos, commercial jingle demos or something. Right. And we were working side by side, uh, coincidentally, with the wrecking crew that you may have heard about. Oh, yes. In fact, I just, I tried to get... Uh... Carol Kane on my podcast, but uh, oh, yeah. she was an amazing. She, you know, that was the first time a woman had been part of the core rhythm group or rhythm section of a, of a rock and roll band, and what she she probably had some challenges along the way. I'm sure um, she did. Yeah, yeah, but but we were there in the room with them, you know, constantly. And I I had a little girl at the time. I was divorced when Susie was four, mm-hmm. uh, four and a half, and she was an only child, and she was. Alone with her for the first few years, like through the Danny Kay years, it wasn't so bad because uh, her best friend lived across the street, and we finally made an arrangement with Julie's mother and the three brothers there that Susie would she would be part of their family while I was working, wow. and I'd pick her up late at night and wrap her up in a blanket and bring her home. But in later years, and when we moved to a different neighborhood, it was it was hard. I mean, she. She's told me in her later years that she felt invisible when she was a kid. Mm. So it was hard to look back and really, really see how true that was. Right. I can imagine. And, and I know, you know, it's it's got to be neat to look back and, as you mentioned, you know, have a career that goes for much longer than many of your peers. Just through our conversations over the last, you know, week or two, our email conversations and so on, I yeah. can see you're not one that's slowing down <laughs> you're recording you're writing you just got back from seeing some family you know and travel doing some travel you're also obviously doing fine art photography so you're not quite ready to kick your heels up though it doesn't sound like well you know i think for me i in the very early stages of my life i had some five-year plans and the first five-year plan was to do whatever might be able to be done on camera as an actor or a singer and then I, and writing was one of the last five-year plans because i figured no one if you're a writer no one cares if you're starting to have gray hair <laughs> but uh and and it's been a big part of my life for these this last uh, 25 years or so because i really have always loved writing and that's something that I hope I can continue to do. I've had some poems and little short fiction pieces published, and and I'm looking forward to the memoir. And and I have another writing project that I'll tell you about in a minute. But I'm also coincidentally several composers have written out. So I've I've done lyrics for for a, a composer here in town and a composer in New York, and we're demoing those things, which is fun. And I just did a little project for the Society of Composers and Lyricists. They team you up with another songwriter and you collaborate on a mm. subject, which 
I have not often done. And we just recorded uh, this week. The next serious writing thing that I want to focus on is magical realism, kind of fictional, slightly long novella-length piece. My fantasy is if I could get it to Michelle Pfeiffer, she would be perfect for the role when they do the film. (laughs) But I coached Michelle for her singing in The Fabulous Baker Boys. Oh, yeah. and and she's a she was just a dear lady and we really i think at that time hit it off and she spoke very kindly of our work together so with all that you've learned and the experience you've had over these years if you had 10 minutes to sit down with 20 year old Sally Stevens what do you think you would share with her oh boy wow I would tell her that she maybe should have worked a little harder with her with her own songwriting. Hmm. That uh, I, I came across a basket full of songs I'd written in the '70s, and some of them were really pretty darn good, but I didn't know how to promote them in, at that time. Right. So I would encourage her to be a little braver about that. But I would also caution her that if she had had a career as an artist. It might have lasted five years, you know, at best. Mm. If she were to stay in the path that she was on, she would have been blessed with a wonderful, long, happy career. Mm-hmm. I would advise her to have been a little more careful, perhaps, in the decisions she made regarding marital commitments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, learn to say no a little earlier in life. It's a really good question that I, I don't have a really good answer for. I think you've answered beautifully. <laughs> that, that there are some wonderful experiences along the, the way that she would have no idea she'd have the opportunity to have and, and just to embrace them when they happen. Now let's, uh, we're just kind of nearing the end of our time here. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how people can keep up to date with what you're doing, get updates on your memoir, which I can't wait to read and I will... <laughs> buy one from you hopefully you can oh, you can sign you, for it sign you shall it. have you shall receive one in the mail you don't have to buy one. <laughs> oh no that's, that's not necessary but your website tell us about your website because that's probably the best place to kind of keep up with what you're doing you have some of your writing on there you've got yes. all, just all kinds of really good stuff what's your what's your website and we'll put a link to it in the show notes well that would be great thank you brian i actually have a couple of websites so the writer website is sallystevenswriter.com good and that's stevens with a v and the, i have another website www.hollywoodfilmchorale c h o r a l e.com and that is probably not as current and up to date as it should be but you can learn a lot about the films and the television projects over the years there. And then there's a third website, the photography website, which also is not complete, but it's sallystevensphotographer.com. Okay. And then if you click on the, when you get the opening page, if you click on the picture photograph of James Horner conducting, it will take you to the composers, the film composers page. And that is a series of about, I think, about, 30 or so composers listed alphabetically by name. And if you click on their name, you can see their photograph and then a bit about their credits and bio. But the writer's website is the most current one, and I hope to make it very current. I've got to start plugging in more often. I will put a link to 
Atmosphere Press, and the book will also be available on on Amazon. You mentioned James Horner. Did you ever work with James? Yes, I did on many projects. So I have to tell you, he is one of my musical heroes, and I I miss him still to this day, especially now with the new Avatar film coming out. His work in the first film was great. In fact, my wife and I had our first dance to the Ludlows from Legends of the Fall, which is one of the most beautifully cinematic films I have ever seen. It's my favorite Anthony Hopkins movie. Um, And I I have more James Horner scores than I could even care to count. I am such a fan of his body of work. What did you do for James? I'm so glad we have a chance to talk about this. I worked for James on several things prior to doing any contracting for him. I worked with Ron Hicklin on some of his projects. Okay. Uh, Apollo 13 was one of them. We just watched that not long ago here in my home. Beyond Borders, I contracted. Uh, I sang on sneakers, oh. uh, and that was a, that was a special project for me because the vocal there were just two of us, two sopranos, myself and Darlene Koldenhoven, and Ron Hicklin put us together and was on the session with us. Those vocals were very featured in the score, and that was unusual. You know, we, the solo stuff didn't happen all that often. American Tale. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. yeah. Mighty Joe Young, I worked on. Deep Impact, I sang on. Jumanji. Oh, I um, love Jumanji. <laughs> well, that's just so neat that you got to work with James. As I mentioned, he's yes. definitely one of my favorites. What a talent and what an absolute loss. Died far too um, young. Glory, I sang on also for him. Did you really? Wow. Uh, yeah, for Ron, I think. Just a quick, quick story about James, we used to record a lot at Todd A.O. In the control room, when he did his projects, it was full of these fascinating little gadgets and art pieces and memorabilia and statues and and, uh, water bubble fountains and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that that was something the studio just did for him. He brought all that stuff in from his own home studio. And, and his wife did a wonderful little video after he passed away and a tour of his studio. And he, she talked about how fascinated and how fun it was for him to be involved with all. He was a collector of all this stuff. Really? And, and, and I never knew that side of him. I am so grateful, Sally, that, that you joined me today. It's been an absolute delight talking with you. And I'm really glad that our paths crossed. And uh, it's been a great joy to get to know you and uh, to get a little insight into what your career has been like. So thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much, Brian. It's been delightful to talk with you. And it, you do this so graciously and, and beautifully. I hope that your podcast just blast out there into the world and become very important projects for people to find. I appreciate that and I'm thankful it's it's growing and uh, very grateful for people like you who are willing to share their stories and for everybody listening I hope you've enjoyed this episode. This is a very special one to me. This is one that will stick with me for the rest of my life. I'm very grateful to Sally for joining us and if you've enjoyed it share it with your friends. Leave a kind review if you feel so inclined. And pack your bags and join us on our next journey to the stage.
And that's a wrap. Thank you.